Welcome to the Young Turks. We got a great interview for you guys today. Living legend Naomi Klein, winner of the Sydney Peaks Prize and about a thousand other awards. Author of five books, including The Shock Doctrine, which has been quoted on the program approximately 2,871 times by not just me, but by other guests and hosts. Her new book is No Is Not Enough, Resisting Trump's Shock Politics and Winning the World We Need. I like that. I hope we win the world we need so much that we get tired of winning. Naomi, welcome to the Young Turks. It's great to be with you, Dave. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so first off, I hear you've got a five step plan to resist <clears throat> Trump. I'm in, what do we do? Right, well, we definitely need a plan for, for how he and the disaster capitalists who surround him take advantage of crises. And if we look at Trump's own track record of, of exploiting economic crisis dating back to the debt crisis in New York City in the 1970s, which created the context for his first big real estate deal, um, to people like Steve Mnuchin who exploited the 2008 financial crisis, to Rex Tillerson who exploits the crisis of climate change and in his when he was at Exxon. Um, you know, these are guys who stand at the ready to make things worse when things are already really bad. And so first we need to just understand understand how this works, what I've called the shock doctrine, which you say needs no explanation because you guys are talking about it, which I appreciate. Um, the other thing we need to do in these moments of crisis is follow the money, look at who's benefiting. Um, you know, when, uh, when Irma was bearing down on Florida, Trump used that occasion to tweet that this means he needs to step up his uh, his plan to slash taxes for the rich. Um, and uh, and so we need to really look at who is profiting in Puerto Rico right now. There's a major push to privatize the electricity system, using uh, the uh, the the fact that the island doesn't have electricity right now as the latest pretext. But of course, this push was ongoing. Um, and I think the something else that we need to keep in mind is that um, crises don't always benefit the bad guys. There's also a really rich progressive tradition um, when there are crises in capitalism, when we see the system laid bare, whether it's the crash of 1929, whether it's a horrific fire like the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire um, in 1914. Um, you know, there, These moments can be collective wake up calls when suddenly societies come together and really try to fix things. And that's a part of progressive history that often doesn't get taught in school, but that's these are the context in which some of the most significant victories for um, workers, uh, for the elderly, for young people, for affordable housing. Um, this is when we win. Um, so you know, things either get um, worse really quickly in times of crisis, or there can be a kind of evolutionary leap. And I think Trump himself represents a, an epic crisis uh, that we need to be coming together to strategize around. Boy, that opens up a lot of things. So later we'll talk about whether you're pessimistic or optimistic about the future. I'm very curious about that. But a possibilist. <laughs> okay, I like that. I like that. I happen to think what's possible is quite broad, but we'll get into that. So there's a couple of different crises here. Vegas is one that just happened, the mass yeah. worst mass shooting we've had in modern history, at least. And and if you notice, Republicans. If there's a crisis they like, terrorism, or et cetera, they, or even a financial meltdown, they'll take yeah. it as a, a, a moment to push through deregulation, tax cuts, um, war, whatever it is that they profit from. But when it is a moment uh, that 
could lead to positive change, a mass shooting like in Vegas. They immediately say, whatever you do, the key word is don't politicize, which means don't politicize. Yeah. Don't, don't take action right now. So, right. you know, Naomi, I, the question that flows from that is, I feel like you know, TV was a wall of of collusion with the the rich and the powerful and the elite, and it was so hard to break through. But I feel like we're finally with some uh, a little bit because of the internet, or maybe a lot because of the internet, but because of other factors too. Uh, that we're beginning to break through. So when they say don't politicize, I feel like for the first time people go, "Oh yeah, I get it. That's a stupid talking point they're doing to yeah. not take action." Am I right, right about that? Are we seeing some progress on that? I think we are seeing it. Um, and you know, it's it, this this phrase "don't politicize." It comes up it, uh, it, after mass shootings every time. It comes up also in the midst of storms that we know are being supercharged by climate change. Even the horrific wildfires right now in California. Right, we hear all the time. Um, you know. This is not the time to be talking about climate change. Of course, we should talk about climate change when nobody cares about climate change, right? Um, because mm-hmm. it's so easy to talk about climate change, you know, the rest of the time. Um, so we hear it, we hear it, we hear it about storms and fires. We hear it about shootings. Uh, we also in the UK they heard it after the horrific Grenfell Tower uh, um, inferno, where you had this public uh, housing estate that went up in flames, and many people said. This is the legacy of, uh, of of decades of austerity, of cutbacks, of deregulation, um, and you know they, there were warnings from residents saying, you know, this is a disaster waiting to happen. It's the only thing that will get people's attention. And you heard this same refrain: "Don't politicize it." And it is that is an extremely political statement um, because I believe that the right understands the power of these kinds of crises to act as wake up calls. Right. So either. You know, if as you said, if it's if it, if it's a crisis that they feel goes, you know, plays into their hands, like a, a, something that they can say, well, this is why we need the Muslim travel ban. Um, they will leap to that, and they will immediately politicize a disaster with absolutely no information. Um, but if it's something that they feel lends, particularly that it, if it lends itself to progressive change, to a diagnosis of. Wait a minute. This is what happens when you have deregulated capitalism gone mad. Um, we need, you know, we, we need to respond to this. They will immediately go into this. Don't don't politicize it. And I think people see it for what it is, um, and are just, you know, carrying on and and making their arguments in in the moment when people are most focused on it. Yeah, because they see the tremendous human costs. So now let's talk about a moment of change that is potential because of Donald Trump. And that's what your book's about. And by the way, the book's already a New York Times bestseller. And obviously, we'll have a link down below wherever you're watching this to how you can buy it. Okay, so the Democrats in charge say, well, no, this is a great moment to resist. Almost by the very definition of the word, it means just to push back enough so that we we stop his momentum, um, and and uh, healthcare is a decent example of this. They yeah. say just stop Trump care and call it a victory, um, but Medicare for all that'll open us up to attacks. They say, and it'll give the Republicans an opening uh, where they can counterattack because we're being too liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, you seem to have a different prescription. What's your take on this? Well, look, just just. In practical terms, you know, if all we do is 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 try to hold the line, if we do, if we adopt this defensive posture, 
and say no and resist. And even in the absolute best case scenario, if we were to win every one of these defensive fights, which we will not, we already know that because we've already lost some. Then the best case scenario is we end up exactly where we were before Trump was elected, which which is exactly the context that produced Trump. Things were angry enough. There was there there was enough of a sense that this system was not working for a huge number of people that a lot of people voted for Trump and a lot of people didn't vote. 90, 90 million Americans didn't vote, which is pretty incredible to to just sort of take that for granted or take that as normal. So. You know, I think we need. You know, and I have to tell you, this comes out of um, you know the the research I did in writing the Shock Doctrine more than ten years ago. Now, when I wrote that book, I really did think that just understanding these tactics and just saying no and just resisting them as they were coming down. Um, would be enough. And that book came out in 2007. And a few months later, the global financial system melted down. And a lot of people said no. I mean, if we think back to 2008, 2009, this was this period of incredible international unrest where the, the, you know, the cries of we won't pay for your crisis, the occupations of Squares in Spain and Greece and Italy, and then eventually Occupy Wall Street, coming to New York City, where people said, "No, we reject this logic that this crisis that was created by the elites should produce more inequality, should produce this huge transfer of wealth between regular from from regular working people to the people who caused this crisis." So I don't think there was any shortage of resistance, but what I would argue there was a shortage of in that moment was a clear vision of the world we want instead of the yes as well as the no. So, you know, I'm not arguing that no is unnecessary. We do have to say no to these incredibly dangerous plans and these incredibly dangerous policies, but as we say no, we have to propose something better than the pre-Trump status quo. And you know, I think the fight for Medicare for all is a great example of people rejecting this incredibly inhuman plan to throw millions of people off of healthcare, but at the same time, acknowledging that the status quo is not good enough and proposing a bold plan that um, that, that is better than the pre-Trump status quo. And I think we see something similar from the incredible courageous action of many dreamers right now who are pushing back against Trump's uh, um, uh, attacks on DACA, but at the same time are saying, you know what? DACA wasn't good enough. We are tired of being pitted against our parents. We want status for all. And so I think more and more we're seeing social movements um, finding a way to both resist and propose. But I think where we are, um, you know, where we're st- where we still have a lot of work to do is in connecting the dots because I think we're still very much in our single issue silos in the way we talk about this, you know, healthcare over here, immigration status over here, um, you know, the, the movement for black lives over here, um, gender justice over there. And there's, a, a, I think in this, in this new generation of activists, there's a deep understanding of the need for an intersectional analysis um, and also intersectional solutions. But it's one thing to understand that it's another thing to have the political institutions and structures that allow us to stay out of our single issue silos and paint a picture, not just of a single policy that we want, but of a different system governed by different values. So you have a way of putting things. <laughs> I don't know if you know that. Maybe that's why your books sell so well. Two things I already got out of this interview that I love. Don't politicize is an inherently political statement. 
and what you just said there. Before Trump, we had the situation that created Trump. So <laughs> that is not a winning situation. That is not something we wanna go back to. Um, and so you also mentioned political institutions right there. So that's what I wanna ask about next. So um, unfortunately, the biggest political institution on the left is the Democratic Party. I say unfortunately because right now as it is currently constituted, it seems to, and if I'm wrong here, jump in, tell me, and and you know that's why we do the interviews. Um, I'm very curious about your take on it. It seems to be blocking all change, uh, and uh, it could be uh, maybe characterized as the dreams deferred party. Uh, so maybe we could dream about that, but at a later time, not today. Mm -hmm. Am yeah, I seeing yeah. that wrong? No, I think you're you're definitely seeing that right. But you know, I think what it is significant what Bernie has managed to do. It's hugely significant with Medicare for all, and getting what is it now? Seventeen senators? Is it more who have signed on to his bill? Um, and they they have signed on to it because the political ground is shifting, and it's absolutely led by millennials. Um, it's led by on the ground organizing, uh, incredible organizing spearheaded by National Nurses United. Um, and this, this, this insistence on fighting for better than the pre-Trump status quo. So I think that is inching uh, you know, a, a few things in the right direction, but I think structurally you're absolutely right. And you know, I, the one thing that, that's giving me hope right now and you know, I would love to hear your take on this. But I, I just last week was in Brighton for the Labor Party's annual convention. They call it a conference. This was the first Labor Party convention since the elections that they had in spring, which was an incredible upset, right? So Jeremy Corbyn ran for leader of the Labor Party. There was a huge centrist campaign against him. He was. It was painted as the absolute end of the world for this party that, like the Democratic Party, had embraced the logic of uh, uh, of only market-based solutions, of only incremental change. Um, you know, I'm not going to delineate Tony Blair's crimes, um, but they're pretty similar to Hillary Clinton's, right? And the backing of the of the Iraq War, providing liberal cover for it, and so on and so on. But there was an insurrection within the Labor Party, led by young people, that led to Jeremy Corbyn becoming leader, and then he faced coup after coup attempt from within his party where they tried to unseat him, where they said he was unelectable. And then um, they have this election and what is the game changer, everybody's predicting that, that labor is gonna be wiped out. What is the game changer is that is Corbyn coming out with this party platform, what they call the manifesto, the labor party manifesto that is calling for free public education, bold action on climate, fully funded health care, renationalizing the rail system, community controlled renewable energy. I mean, a fundamentally redistributive program. Their slogan is for the many, not the few. All of these ideas that we were told were impossible to utter in public, right? Like renationalizing an essential service that has experienced this completely failed privatization model and people love it. And suddenly, labor wins more seats, that more votes than in any election since the Second World War. The Tories lose their majority. And there's a new poll that just came out this week that shows that if there was an election tomorrow, Jeremy Corbyn would absolutely win that election. He's well ahead of the Tories in the polls. So there is no doubt 
that the Democratic Party elites are going to fight tooth and nail as the Labor Party elites did to hold on to their power, to hold on to this model that is serving them very well, but is failing the vast majority of people. I think you know people have to understand that if they're gonna go that route of trying to sage an insurrection within the Democratic Party, they're not gonna be thanked for it. It's a war. It was a war within the Labor Party, but ultimately it was a successful one. So the question is, is the Democratic Party democratic enough for that to be replicated? And you know that's what I'm not sure about, right? Whether the superdelegate structure would come down and crush it. My feeling is that if people decide to go that route of trying to um, replicate what happened in the UK with a sort of a party within a party structure, because in 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 the UK what they had was a what they have is a membership-based organization called Momentum that has staged this insurrection within the Labor Party and is, has now become the Labor Party essentially. Um, you know, I, I think if, if people decide to go that route, there can't be the message that they're good, whatever happens, they'll line up. I think that if it fails again, there has to be a new structure that comes out of it, a new party that comes out of it. And then some people would say it isn't even worth trying again, uh, but I'm not so sure, but what, what do you think? Well, a party within a party, it almost sounds like uh, the Justice Democrats within the Democratic Party. <laughs> um, so sounds a little like that. Uh, yes, so obviously I'm in the school of uh, the Democratic Party as abhorrent as it is today can be rescued. Uh, but we have to board their ship and the rescue does not come in the form of hugs and kisses. It comes in the form of primaries and um, sound defeats to their side. Uh, we must board the mothership and take it over. Uh, luckily, they are incredibly weak uh, now uh, and ineffectual. Now, of course, they get much stronger when they fight liberals. Uh, I haven't seen a strong fight against Republicans in decades from the uh, Democratic Party. When it comes to fighting progressives, uh, every dirty trick in the book. David Brock's trolls, which he bragged about during the primaries. Uh, charges of racism and sexism at every turn. Uh, just every dirty trick there is in the book, this Democratic establishment will throw at us. So there's all this Pollyannish talk about how, um, well, we shouldn't have civil war within the Democratic Party and that'll hurt unity and the fight against Trump. Nonsense, absolute have nonsense. <laughs> yes, we should definitely have a civil war. If they would like unity, I could make that deal as long as they unify behind the most popular politician in the country. That logic is unassailable. So if you wanna unify behind Bernie Sanders, deal. If you don't wanna unify behind the most popular person in the country, well then of course we're not gonna have a deal because you're being an idiot and we're gonna crush you and we're gonna beat you. So I'm in that school. So I can't, Naomi, I gotta be honest with you, I can't wait to beat him. <laughs> because I think in a lot of ways the Democratic Party is, it's impossibly worse than the Republican Party, but they're, they look like they're in open cooperation. So it certainly doesn't appear that way on television because I think that television is one of the giant, giant problems in our society right now. And they put on a nice kabuki theater, Oh, Pelosi and Schumer are against Trump, etc. But when it come, push comes to shove and all of a sudden tax cuts for the rich, everybody agrees. Bush agreed, Obama made him permanent with a tiny little shave off the top. 94% of the tax revenue that went to the rich was codified forever under Obama. And you know, we can go on and on. So yeah. 
the reality is I think that the Republican Party is greatly aided and embedded by the Democratic establishment and yes, television. So mm -hmm. I actually wanted to ask a specific question about that uh, to you. And I'm curious, and again, I have no idea what the answer here is. Um, so they, they are often talk about how there's not enough progressives on TV. I was just in Washington and people were talking about it. Mm -hmm. They actually, they don't frame it that way, sorry. They say you guys don't have enough stars. Well, I say, what do you mean by stars? Uh, if it's adjudicated by who CNN puts on TV, well, you're right. They have 150 Hillary Clinton supporters to one and a half Bernie Sanders supporters. So, um, but in your, I, that's why I'm curious, because mm -hmm. your reputation is excellent. And I don't think anyone can debate the fact that you're a New York Times bestseller, one of the top public intellectuals, etc. Is it that you're choosing not to go on TV so much? And that might be a perfectly fine choice as an author, or or uh, are you not getting invited much? Hmm. Um, so the, the short answer is pretty much not getting invited. Um, and it's very different than what happens to me. You know, when I was in the UK for the Labor Party conference this past week, I was on all of the flagship news shows um, on TV. Um, you know, not to say that these were softball interviews, but uh, but but I absolutely have access to the most mainstream television audiences, not just in the UK, but you know, in in many countries. Um, and the US is. Is markedly different, um, and actually, it's getting worse. I'll be honest with you. Um, I have to also be honest with you about something, which is that I do hate doing television. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's it's one of my least favorite things, but I I agree with you that it is incredibly important. Um, so, uh, you, you know, we really did try with this book, and 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 I we had we had less luck with this book, with No Is Not Enough, than with my previous, with any of my previous books, with The Shock Doctrine, with This Changes Everything, um, there's less space. Because I think part of what's happened is the MS MSNBC is so much in the anti-Trump, it's all about Russia, Camp and my analysis is no. It's about you know we have to look at how both political parties produce this moment. Looking at Trump not as this aberration, but as a culmination, as a logical outcome of a system that cannot just be blamed on Republicans. And that's not a message that is particularly interesting in this moment on MSNBC. So I used to be able, I used to get on there a lot more when I had a book coming out. And and now, you know, I don't seem to fit in any of the boxes. But the interesting thing is that this book has done better despite not being on TV, right? Um, because I think we have so many different ways of reaching each other now. So whether it's podcasts, social media, viral videos, people people are getting the message. My concern is that it's it, you know it, there is this slight preaching to the choir element where we're we're able to reach the people who are already on side better than we ever have. But in terms of having conversations across divides, right? Forget Republican versus Democrat divides, but just within the divides, um, you know, uh, you know, on the so-called left side of the political spectrum. And I'm not sure, you know, when we're talking about mainstream Democrats that I, I would even say they're on that side. But you know, I when you know when Joanne Reed sent out that tweet, right? Where, where she said that you know um, Bernie supporters uh, are like the the guy who comes to your apartment, sleeps on your couch, and ruins your aesthetic. 
Um, you know, I, I very rarely engage in, you know, Twitter warfare, but I just politely tweeted back, you know, I'd like to come on your show and debate this. And I think it was retweeted, you know, 11,000 times or something, but I never heard back from the show, right? Really? And this is when my book was number two on the New York Times bestseller list. So come on. You know, it's absolutely ridiculous. And this, you know, this, I think this can only be seen as, you know, a, a, a de facto form of censorship. We have to have these debates. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I promised I wouldn't ruin her aesthetic, but to no end, to no end. <laughs> so, um, one thing I would just, I would just add about what you were saying earlier, you know, I, I, around rallying around Bernie. You know, I love Bernie, supported him. Um, I think he's doing incredible work. But I also think that if we are going to win this battle, and you and I agree that it is a battle, we also have to learn from the failures on our side and build a much broader tent, a much more diverse coalition, do a better job of connecting the dots between economic inequality and racial injustice and gender injustice. It cannot be seen as some sort of an add-on. So I think part of the strategy has to be around really coming together out of our silos. You know, This is a moment of tremendous political mobilization, but coming together and saying, what is our vision of the world we want instead? Learning from what the Labor Party were able to do with their manifesto, but going even further. So part of it is a tactical battle, but part of it is also about vision and about really coming up with that people's platform that we demand whoever that popular politician is that people rally around is accountable to that base. Yeah. All right, well, a lot we agree on. Let me just quickly review a couple of things you just <laughs> mentioned. Look, MSNBC is in some ways the worst. So I feel bad saying that because there's a bunch of people on there that I, I like, so I think I. Are, are good people. But they have their right wing programming, Scarborough and every new program that Andy Lack has brought in and it's gross. And then they have their progressive programming, which is not progressive. It's pro democratic party, they're cheerleaders for the democratic party through and through. You're almost never going to hear an anti-democratic party message on MSNBC. It's just become a propaganda outlet for whichever part of the establishment the you know the left or the right supports. So it's just kind of revolting. So that that's my take on it. And I, you know the funny thing is, for all the stuff that I've said about MSNBC management, I don't think I've ever said that really about the shows. But I'm I'm tired of it. I'm you know and and Naomi's partly driven. I was just in D.C. And I, I never watch TV unless I go to a different city and it's on on the treadmills or in the bars or whatever. <laughs> and it's amazing how much MSNBC talks about Russia. Amazing. <laughs> they talk and and it's not just because they think that the that the president is vulnerable on it. Look, I think the president did the stuff on Russia. I talk about it from time to time, but it, it is so that they don't have to talk about policy. Right. Right. right? So. And Joy Reid, you know, we were friends, and I have no personal beef with her at all. But there isn't like a progressive cause that Joy Reid will not viciously attack immediately in service of the Democratic establishment. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there is almost no one worse on TV than than Joy Reid about protection of the elite and the establishment. And so, I I can't stand it anymore. I don't even think this is it's it's good for ratings to to avoid this debate, you know, because it 
this is a live debate that is animating huge numbers of people everywhere I go. This is the question, can the Democratic Party be saved? What is the strategy, right? Where and where is the place where 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 we are airing out the fact that this is the most urgent debate for people who want to get rid of Trump? What is the strategy? And how is it possible that there's nowhere to talk about this? You know, I, I, the, the nation where I'm a contributing editor and used to write a column, um, you know, Katrina Vanden Heuvel used and Victor Nabaski used to say that the nation is where liberals and progressives or liberals and leftists, whatever you want to call them, talk to each other. Right, so you could have you know an Alexander Coburn and 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 a Christopher Hitchens duking it out, you know, in the pages and having huge disagreements. And and one of the things that I'm really struck by is there really aren't places anymore where that debate happens. They're really dwindling, and and it's to all of our detriment. Well, I'll tell you what, we are going to recreate it right here on the Young Turks, and I'm I'm not remotely kidding. So. Well, that's part of the reason we got new funding is that we're gonna create new shows where we're gonna have that dialogue. And it doesn't mean that we're gonna do the same thing as MSNBC and shut out the other side. No, we're gonna have voices in support of the Democratic Party in support of no minimalist stuff, stuff I don't agree with. And by the way, there are people to the left of me that I don't agree with, but that's the whole point. We're, right. we're gonna set up a campfire for true progressives and we're gonna ha- hash out these issues. So along those lines, let's do one right here because mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, here I'm not sure we agree. So I'm, I'm curious about this and maybe we do, maybe we don't. So uh, you write about uh, neoliberalism, you write about capitalism and and I was wondering if you, um, I wanted to just probe a little bit further into whether you think that uh, it is the excesses of capitalism that is the issue, the neoliberal uh, strategies that you often write about and we all uh, agree are, are problematic, or if you think it's the core of capitalism, that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it depends what we're talking about. Um, and it also depends on, on how we understand capitalism, right? Like how we understand why this economic system that we have evolved into neoliberalism about 40 years ago, right? Because there's 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 sometimes this sense that you can just kind of turn back the clock to the pre-neoliberal period, right? So I'm assuming that everybody you know knows what I'm referring to, but just in case there are a few people out there who who don't, right? I'm talking about this um, kind of revolution that uh, that 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 began under Reagan and Thatcher in Latin America began earlier, um, where there was a, a, a the dominant economic model was a mixed economy, a Keynesian economy, um, and uh, and and this was the legacy of the New Deal and policies like it around the world. And then there was a counter revolution against that, where the push was to create this kind of pure form of capitalism to deregulate financial markets to privatize those parts of the economy that were in public hands like healthcare, education, roads, and so on. To cut taxes and pay for them with huge cuts to public services, to control the many people who were left out of this economic model, exiled, really excluded from the economy altogether through mass incarceration, militarized policing. So these trends all evolve at the same time, right? So 
so, so there is this idea that you can maybe turn back the clock and go back to a 1970s form of capitalism that had all of these social programs. Um, and that was a sort of a kinder, gent- gentler capitalism. I think that structurally, actually, that's just not true. I think neoliberalism was an attempt to resolve a crisis within capitalism, which which was a crisis of stagnation. Um, and and this, this comes down to the problem that really is at the heart, which is that we have an economic system that needs constant growth and expansion in order to survive. And when it when it reaches a plateau of either stagnation or contraction, which is a recession or if it lasts long enough, a depression, then it has to very hungrily find new ways to achieve growth, which is when you often have these bubbles that get created. So I just don't think it's structurally possible to just turn back the clock because I think neoliberalism was not an ideological project, even though it masqueraded as one. It was an attempt to resolve a crisis within capitalism. And that crisis, that 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 uh, the reason for that is that quest for growth, which is fundamentally at odds with one of the biggest crises of our time, which is the crisis of climate change and the fact that we are hitting all of these ecological boundaries um, where we can't continue to expand. We can't have an economy that sees perpetual growth and in consumption as inevitable. So we can grow parts of our economy uh, that are lighter on the earth, like the caregiving professions, like the arts. There are parts of our economy that are not based on, on, on a very wasteful model of consumption, but we do need to contract those parts of our economy. So we are talking about a much more managed economy if it is going to be not at war with both people and the planet. So uh, I hope that's somewhat of an answer. Of course it is. Uh, So my take on it is maybe slightly different. Um, uh, What I'm worried about more than capitalism is corporatism. That when you uh, have public corporations and you program them as we have done to maximize profit at all costs and to not really take anything else into consideration. We are going to, we have set up by its very nature and definition an out of control system. Mm-hmm. That if you're a banker, you're incentivized to take more and more risk because you will keep the profits. And as you famously say, some people actually misattribute it to me, I'm just quoting you. You privatize the gains and socialize the losses. And in a system like that, any rational actor that is interested in maximizing profits will take outsized risks and hence crash the economy. So I think that public corporations insatiable need for growth and greed, which is built into their programming is the problem rather than the structure of capitalism itself. Right, and I guess the, the the only way that I would differ is just I, I feel like this corporatism that we have is a sort is it is, is the illogical outcome of that system. Um, it, this is this is what the application of those rules looks like, and I think that the Trump administration is this kind of final frontier. Um, where they we've been privatizing and privatizing and um, the the public sphere until now the last bastion um, of it is the is the White House itself right and which is why I see the Trump administration really as this like this final takeover this final merger and you have all of these interests the Trump family but also Exxon also Goldman Sachs who have a purely extractivist view of government they are coming to to just get everything they can to just loot the place and then leave, right? So it's the ultimate expression of that corporatist logic. I'm just not sure that it, that that capitalism is capable of producing anything else, but I'm happy to debate this, you know, 
all the time. And yes. It's one of my favorite topics. Yeah, well, we'll pick it up again because uh, of course, once we get to the place where we are now uh, in this discussion, then you get into the definition of what does it mean Capitalism, what does socialism mean? Something right. that no one ever defines and they just mm -hmm. make it either a boogeyman if they don't like it or the answer if they do like it and, and no one ever defines it. But yeah. I, you know, but we have had a great conversation here today. I hope people had a chance to check it out and check out your book as well. No is not enough, resisting Trump's shock politics and winning the world we need. So before we go, last question then Naomi mm -hmm. is, I asked you earlier, optimistic or pessimistic mm. about the future? I mean, you just called Trump the final frontier in this, you know, basically out of control greed that we have now. Where, and I've seen you write about this in the past, where you said, you know, in the past they used to buy the politicians and get the politicians to do what they want. They've now, with Trump, kind of taken out the middleman. So here's a, the ultimate capitalist in a sense. Uh, mm -hmm. Saying, yeah, yeah, I'm just going to give trillions of dollars to the, my rich friends and the powerful, and I'm done with it. So, mm -hmm. is it the final frontier? Will we turn around after this? What, what's your sense of it? Um, yeah, it may be overly optimistic to call it the frontier, a final frontier, because things can always get worse. Um, um, I, you know, what I, what I say in the book is that is that Trump to me is sort of like dystopian fiction come to life, right? That, and if we think about, you know, good dystopian fiction or good dystopian film, what, what it does is it doesn't create an imaginary world. It takes our world um, and just kind of exaggerates it. It follows all of the, the current roads to their logical conclusion, right? So you end up, you know, with vastly more unequal worlds. Um, you end up, you end up with completely unmasked uh, corporate power. Um, and this is the story we we tell ourselves over and over and again in fiction. You know, whether it's The Hunger Games or Elysium, that this is the only kind of future we can have, really. Um, and but the but the reason why artists um, you know write these stories and 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 make these films is the idea that 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 by seeing where this all leads it, it, in a really unmasked form it might act as a kind of a wake up call and and people will see the desperate need for deep change not the kind of tinkering and triangulation that the Democratic Party has been offering for so long and I, I do see. Um, Reasons for hope around that. I wouldn't describe myself as as an optimist. I, 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 I my friend John Powell at the Haas Institute at Berkeley calls himself a possibilist, which, um, you know, that's the best I can do. Which is to say, like, I see a, I, I see a, a, a possible road out of this mess, but it involves. Worthing so quickly, um, and it involves a level of organization that we haven't seen in many decades. Um, but it is still possible, and the stakes are so incredibly high. And we are on such a tight and unyielding planetary deadline because of climate change um, that if there is any chance that we could pull this off, then I just think it's the responsibility of all of us to just have all hands on deck um, and to increase the, the possibility of us pulling this off rather than sort of debating what the chances of success are. Because if there's any chance of success, we just have to go for it. Here, here, Naomi Klein, one of the top public intellectuals, authors and progressives in the world. Thank you for joining us on the Young Turks. It was such a pleasure. Thank you and good luck with everything. Can't wait to see what you do next.